Two weeks ago, I asked you the question, who is on the Lord's side? And I showed you from the Bible that our enemies are outside, and they include the world, and they include the devil, and they include, car- they include carnal Christians, and they also include the lusts of our own flesh. And so we want to consider tonight fighting some of those enemies in the matter of making our lives count. We've been studying the Lord's return for us, and that's important because we shall all give an account of our lives to Him. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to ask what we have done in our bodies in service and loyalty to Him. What have we done for Him that will stand in that day of judgment, that won't be burned away or lost, once it's examined under the holy eyes of the judge of the quick and the dead? What have we done for others that will stand in that day? We want to make our lives count. What is your life? There's your existence, and that is that you have a soul and a spirit, a heart and a mind that's uniquely human, and it's uniquely yours. Yours is not mine. Mine is not yours, because you have a special combination of heart, mind, spirit, and soul that is that God has given to you and is separate from all others. That is your life. You know, there there is sitting in this room a collection of very unique things, and that is the spirit and soul that we have from our Creator. Your life is also your performance, what you accomplish with your life, what you produce, what you perform. And there's your relationships, how you affect God and others, how you relate to them. And your experiences, what do you have in life that is related to pain? Or what do you have in life that's full of pleasure? What is your life? You know, there's an existence, but we want a whole lot more than that. There's performance, but we only want performance that God accepts. There's relationships, but we want those that He defines and approves of, and the experiences are going to flow from those three. What is your life? Let's keep asking the question, because it's a pretty special thing that we have that is your life. It only lasts a while, and it's gone. Your life in this world. Contrary to evolution, you are not an animal. Your spirit is very different. Theirs goes down upon death and yours goes up. There is no connection between the two whatsoever. It doesn't matter how much you might like your pet pig or any other animal that you have. They don't have a spirit like man's. Man's goes upward and returns to God, and an animal's goes down back into the earth. You have a heart and mind different from them. My brethren, we weren't asked if we wanted life. I wasn't asked, and you weren't asked if we wanted to live. A creator with infinite power and total and absolute sovereignty made that choice for us. But since we have life, we should make the most of it. Since we have it, though we were not asked, God gave it to us, let's make the most of our lives. Let's make our lives count. What is making your life count? Some say, make a difference in the world. Others say, it's to fulfill my destiny or purpose. Others, to add value to those that are around me, usually family and friends. Others will say that making your life count is to enjoy life to its fullest, without pain. Others want to measure it by success in as many measures as they can be successful. What does it mean to make your life count? How can we make our lives count? This is the most important subject we can consider. 
this gift that God's given us, this assignment that God's given us here in this world, making it count in a way that He will approve of it. What will you do with your life? That's why we're here tonight, is for this question and this conviction, hopefully, that we'll end up with from God. Solomon wrote inspired philosophy for your life. He tried everything, and he tried it in ways that we can barely imagine trying the different aspects of life. We should heed him before life is over. Ecclesiastes 12, the final chapter in his book of philosophy, starts out with these words. Remember now thy Creator in the days of thy youth, before the evil days come. And the evil days are those past 50, or 60, or 70, when the body begins to break down and the mind is not what it was in its youth. It's the most important subject we can consider. What is your life? How useful have you been in your life? How Have you made it count? Is your life measurable by the standards that God gives us? Who gave you your life is a question we should ask, and I love to hear children answer this one because this is fundamental to a worldview that's going to make you a wise man. God did. You exist because God the Creator chose to give you existence. This is one of the most basic and important facts of life, and children should be taught it as early as possible. The infinite Creator made you by absolute authority. You know, I've said it before, Some people think that suicide is going to turn off their existence. What a horrible and sad mistake to think that suicide is going to stop their existence. It's just going to bring them before God as a murderer. God gave you life, but it's not your place to take it. It's your duty to give it back to Him in the way that He's prescribed. The next ten seconds of your life, if I was to be silent for that long or the next decade, or His gifts. How are you going to use the the moments and the days that are coming? He can forgive you for the days that you've wasted, and I am most thankful for that. The days, the weeks, the months, the years, the decades. Lord, have mercy on us for being foolish and wasteful with the lives you've given us. But let's walk out of here tonight committed and convicted that we're going to use our lives more diligently. Why did He give you life? For Himself. This is a verse that we know well. And it teaches us that He gave us our lives for Himself. The Lord hath made all things for Himself. Yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. What does it mean for Himself? It means that He is going to get glory for Himself by your existence. It means that He is expecting your life to turn to His praise and glory. And He will turn your life to His praise and His glory with you either being active, choosing to do so, or with you being passive, Him punishing you and grinding you to powder. He will get glory from your life. That's why the verse says, Yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. It says in Revelation 4.11 that it's for His own pleasure. For Himself in Proverbs 16.4 for his own pleasure in 4.11. And for his pleasure they are and were created is what Revelation 4.11 tells us. And what does that mean? He's going to please himself by you. 
And so it gives us this very key to understanding how to make your life count. He did not give you your life for you. He did not give you life for you. He gave you life for Himself. There is a being so far above this world and so far above your life. He gave you your life for Himself and you need to get that straight and it should be fundamental to considering anything about your life or the lives of your children. He didn't give you your life for you. And if you make you the center of your life, you're going to miss His purpose for your life and it's going to work to your punishment in this world and the next. Your life is for Him. What an important concept for us to grasp and really believe. Because when we get into trouble, it's because we are looking to do something for ourselves, regardless of what He would expect or desire from us. Who should measure your life? That answer should be easy. God's purpose and God's desire should be all that counts when we think about, how am I going to measure my life? Is it by what others think? Is it what I think? It's what God thinks. We cannot let other dirtbags who hate God tell us how we should measure our lives. Now you realize we're all dirtbags because God took some dust and breathed into our nostrils the breath of life. What do you think that makes you? A dirtbag. We can't let other dirtbags who hate God tell us how we should measure our lives. That's just foolish. God made us for Himself. Why would we let God's enemies tell us how we should measure a successful life. Those going to hell should not tell us how to live. They follow the devil and his lies. Ignore them. The world is following the course of this world and the prince of the power of the air. They're the children of disobedience. They're the children of wrath. They're going to be punished for their rebellion against God. The world is the enemy of God. Ignore its opinions. We want to establish the measurement of a life from God's Word and fulfill that and not let anyone else tell us whether we are successful or not. Whether they despise us or not, it doesn't matter. The apostles were considered the off-scouring of the world. That means when you're scrubbing a dirty dish, the remains that are on your wash rag or your piece of steel wool are what the world considered the apostles. But it doesn't matter. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11 that the illustrious martyrs that went before us, the world was not worthy of having them live on the same planet with them. That's God's opinion of how the saints of God compare the dirtbags of the world. Who should measure your life? God. His purpose and desire should be all that counts to us. Who tries to measure your life and tell you how to have a successful life? Well, the world does. That's the evil society around us of God-haters. The devil does. That's the spirit enemy that hates God and hates your soul and wants to do everything he can to take you away from pleasing your Creator, from pleasing your Father in Heaven who's adopted you, and your flesh. Your flesh, your wicked desires and thoughts that make up the sinful part of each one of us. And these three, these three work together so well I've called it a conspiracy before. This is a conspiracy far more important than any other conspiracy you can read about or think about to deny God in your life. 
The world, the devil, and your flesh all work together. They all agree with one another because they're all motivated by one principle. Sin and wickedness and hating God and hating His Word and hating His Son, Jesus Christ. And they work together to deny God in your life. And you need to hate all three of them. How does the world measure you? They measure you by peer pressure and they they say a good life is being accepted by others and the world's going to present that we all want to fit in and blend and be approved and accepted by each other. By their advertising campaigns. It's a constant assault by the media to conform to their idea of what means success. The stars of our society, the actors, athletes, politicians, cool guys, and others that we look to because we want to be like them, famous, of a good reputation. Not a good a reputation of being good, but I mean one, a reputation that's well known. Stars. So many people want to model their lives after some star, whether it's an athlete or actor or performing artist of some other kind. It's their lifestyle. Your neighbors, the ones you go to school with or the ones you work with, the ones that live down the street, how they live, their priorities, their pleasures, their purposes in life, their plans. How does the world measure you? By peer pressure, advertising, stars, and lifestyle. How does the devil measure? The devil tries to get you to make your life count by the thoughts he gives you the fiery darts in your brain that you are supposed to quench with the shield of faith by doubts. When you think to yourself as you look at Christians and you hear a message like this, it's not worth it. That's a lie from the devil. That isn't you thinking that thought. That is the devil putting that thought in you. That's not some neutral part of you thinking. That is your sin nature being manipulated by the devil. Or, I can't do it. It's too hard. I can't be a Christian. So I'm just going to go with the flow and let life happen to me. That's how most people live. Life just happens to them. Then they die. Then they find out that they should have done something with their lives. Or, being a Christian is no fun. That's a doubt from the devil. If you ever tried living for the Lord Jesus Christ and putting God first in your life, you would find out that it is the most pleasant, fulfilling, satisfying, and exciting way that you can ever live. How does the devil do it? With lies. I can have God and the world. I don't know why you're so strict. This church is too strict. Wrong. We're not strict enough. A few sins don't hurt. I can have a few pet sins in my life and it'll be okay. Wrong. That's a lie from the devil. Circumstances. The devil will tell you, look at what just dropped into your lap. It has to be from God. Wrong. Look, it's right here, the devil says. It must be right. Oh, no, it isn't. It can just as well and better be a temptation from God rather than an approval of God for you to do something that's wrong. That's how the devil influences you in your life. How does the flesh, this flesh when we refer to it, is your sin nature. How does it measure you? How does it make you think about making your life count? It, you have imaginations. And they are the lust of the flesh and of the mind, as the Bible tells us. You think about what you could be and what you want to be. And that starts to consume you rather than what God wants you to be. Because He made you for Himself. Himself. 
The flesh works as a great listener. Whatever the devil and the world say, it likes what it hears. That's your flesh. Your flesh likes what the world and the devil contribute. That's why it becomes a conspiracy. What they say sounds good to the flesh. What they show looks good to the flesh. It's your lust, your bodily cravings. When we use lust, it's the word for desire or coveting or craving something. For proven pleasure, your body has appetites for food, drink, sex, and other things. And the flesh tells you that, listen, i got to satisfy those things in order to be successful. It is in the temperate use of those things, God's way, that you optimize your life. You, you reject the flesh. Your heart. How does the flesh measure you? Have you ever heard statements like, follow your heart? You know, in a very limited sense, submitting it to God's word, we can understand those words. But when the world uses it, they just want you to follow your lusts, the pride of life. Are you kidding? We're, we should follow what Jeremiah 17 describes about our heart? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked? Who can know it? That's not how we want to measure our lives. What counts to the world? Wow, look at these smart guys. I hope they, I wonder if the Lord will give them any opportunity to talk in hell to each other. This is a Harvard graduating class. You know, an Ivy League school of the North. A degree from Harvard, that's what counts to the world. What a foolish waste of a life. Look at those dunce caps on their heads. And the blue eggs that they made in a uh, Play-Doh session. What counts the world? A big house. So that you can pay more in taxes, pay more in utilities, upkeep, maintenance and repair, and worry about it. Because when you die, that foolish son of yours that was pampered in it with the silver spoon is going to take it and ruin it. I like this one better. What counts the world? A big, beautiful house. That's success. That's making your life count. When you live in a place like that and can be suave and debonair and meet someone at the door with a glass of wine in your hand and show them around your property, have a, have several guest rooms for them, let them swim in the pool. What counts the world? A couple lotus. Might as well have two. If one will make you happy, two will make you happier. Right? Wrong. How about research to find the cure for AIDS? What counts to the world? I want to do something big and important. I want to find the cure for the common cold. We've already had that cure for a long time. Get lots of rest, drink lots of fluid, and wait seven to ten days. But pe- you know, people want to be famous by researching something, that they're going to help the world, they're going to make a difference. What counts to the world is getting into politics. Like the governor of Florida, there's his pretty family. And so you get into politics thinking, I'm going to change the world. Right. What counts the world? It's feeding the poor in Africa. Here's a woman over there feeding those that won't feed themselves and keep on having babies and don't plow and don't plant and don't harvest and don't process. It's been that way from the beginning. And it'll continue to be that way. And you're never going to make hunger go away in the continent of Africa. What counts the world? How about athletic success? Michael Phelps. Look at all those gold medals. He must be the happiest person alive. 
Wrong. Read about him. What counts the world? Having fun. Doing whatever you want. That would make me happy. Look at the combined intelligence on the faces of those five as they think about making their life count with one another. What counts the world? How about a great-looking spouse? There's Tom Brady, the best quarterback in the NFL, and there's his wife, who's the top-paid model in the world. Hey, you might as well get a great-looking spouse. How long are they going to be happy with each other? Do you think Gisele's going to appreciate Tom when she has to adjust the oxygen hose at his nose for him to get the next breath of air? What counts to the world? This is what counts to the world. These things just mean so much to them. What does the devil tell you? He says to follow your heart and do whatever makes you happy. Don't let anyone tell you what you have to do is what the devil tells you. When you hear that thought, when you think that thought, or you utter words in yourself or to anyone else like that, that is from the devil. It's never from the Spirit of God. Satisfy all your lusts. This is what the devil says. And you should remember, when Jesus was tempted by the devil, when it came to lust of the flesh, what did the devil bring? tell him to do? Turn rocks into bread. And Jesus said, Thou shalt, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. The devil will say, Get all the glory you can. And you should remember that Jesus was tempted that way by looking at all the kingdom, kingdoms of the world, and he turned them down. Well, they were his anyway. Because he was going to be promoted to the pinnacle of the universe. The devil says, you can presume on your grace. Listen, everybody else is a hypocrite. So if you're a hypocrite a little bit, no problem. Because everybody else is a little bit of a hypocrite. And you should remember that what Jesus said about presuming on God, it's called tempting God, and you will be judged for it. What does your flesh tell you? Make as much money as you can to be impressive be as important as you can in others opinions be as attractive and fit as you can go to the gym and make your body your temple like the Greeks did in the time of the apostles get a fancy title and a job to go with it to impress others this is what your flesh tells you this is called the pride of life all that is in the world the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the father That is not how you make your life count by thinking about anything that is the lust of your body, the lust of your eyes, or the pride of life. Those three things God has rejected. And if any man is pursuing those things, the love of the Father is not in him. You cannot love God and be seeking those things. Have lots of friends. I want to have lots of friends. Be cool. And I want to be a special person, a good listener, a wonderful friend. That is not how we measure our lives either. Who tried all the things above that I showed you in pictures and I've mentioned so far? There's a man in the Bible that tried them all. Solomon. King Solomon, the son of David. He had superior ability, privilege, power, person, opportunities, wealth, peace, no wars. He could do anything he wanted. He could make one gigantic experiment of what makes life count. What should I be doing under the sun to find happiness and fulfillment? He had every advantage the world, the devil, and the flesh could ever want. He could try it. You know, Tom Brady has one gazelle. 
Solomon had a thousand, and they were all princesses. They didn't come from the gene pool that Giselle came from. You say, her gene pool looks pretty good. Well, I understand. But Solomon had a thousand princesses. Anything you can dream, just dream it. He had more, much more, than you can dream. Solomon did. God raised him up and made him write his life for you. And you have it in the book of Ecclesiastes, and you have pithy little observations of wisdom in his life from the book of Proverbs. God raised him up. Our blessed Father let one of our brothers try everything, and God gave him all the tools to be able to try everything, and then God made our older brother Solomon write it all down for us, and God made sure that everything he put down was truth. And everything that Solomon wrote that wasn't truth, you never got into your hands. Because the 12 chapters of Ecclesiastes and the 31 of Proverbs are inspired wisdom from God through the eyes and experiences of this king. His conclusions are the most important lessons in life for us. What did he learn? It's all vanity. Even two lotuses, a red one and a black one in the garage. I've got a two-car garage. Just think if I, oh, if I had a red lotus and a black lotus, I could be so happy. Until I saw the insurance bill. Until I drove it its first 500 miles and found out that three things broke down in it. Until I realized that it depreciates, you know, 25% in the first two years. I mean, what do you, what do you want to do to make fun of a lotus? It's all vanity. It's empty. It's wasted. It's worthless. It's nothing. That's what the word vanity means. That was Solomon's conclusion. But it, that's not all Solomon concluded. You know, he did conclude that everything that he tried was vanity, but he also concluded that it vexed him. It hurt him. It frustrated him. It disappointed him. It depressed him. It caused him trouble and grief. All those things that I showed you in the pictures and all the things that we're thinking of and the things that you want so bad. I love to watch young couples unmarried, in love, thinking that because they have discovered something that they feel is unique and no one else has ever had it quite like they do, their love for each other is going to make them forever happy. I love to meet them about two weeks after marriage and look at their faces and realize what a rude awakening they had when they got married and realized that they had picked from the bottom of the barrel. That they had, they had another sinner just like themselves. We all do that. My wife has had to do it the most. What in the world did my father get me into by allowing me to marry him? But it's vexation. Because you realize that there's differences there that you didn't notice up front. But everything about a job, you get promoted. You know, when you get promoted and they double your pay over a couple of years' time, they're going to get their pound of flesh for the pay they give you, and you're going to find out that you're working for that company just about 24-7 to keep that bigger paycheck coming in. And it was, it was all worthless and pained him getting it. This is just profoundly important for us to have the right worldview of all the things that the world, the devil, and our flesh think would make us happy. Can you get value or pleasure? If you're thinking right now that a big house like that with a swimming pool for you to get up in the morning and put on a $250 terry cloth robe and stroll out to that 
swimming pool and you'd have an electronic coffee maker that would reach out its arm and stick it in your hand on your way out the door would make you happy. You ain't Solomon. And Solomon tried all that and a whole lot more. Do you think you can get value and pleasure out of your little dabbling and tiddlywinks experiment in some of these things? Solomon tried so much more. You, you not Solomon. And he said it was all vanity and vexation. And this king wrote you a letter to make your life count. What was his conclusion? Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. His great experiment. He concluded it. I love it when I get to read the conclusion of a piece of literature so I don't get messed up on what did the author truly intend for me. And the last two verses of Ecclesiastes give us the conclusion. Fear God. You want to start out right? What's the most important thing you can do? The fear of the Lord will make you great in the sight of God and the sight of men. The fear of the Lord will give you more peace and contentment in your life than any other single thing. More than any other thing added to another thing. All things. The fear of the Lord. And to keep His commandments. Those commandments that God gave us are not grievous. They're for His glory and your profit and safety. Peace and pleasure in life if you'll do it God's way. For this is the whole duty of man. What a text. You know it. We've taught it. You've memorized it. Your children have memorized it. But what a text this is. The conclusion is to fear God, keep His commandments, because this is the whole duty of man. This is it. This is making your life count. This is a man who tried things you can't try. Because God's going to bring every work into judgment. Here's the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is how the book of philosophy ends. God is going to judge every secret thing in your life. You think you're hiding something that gives you little personal jollies? I don't care if it's your fantasies when you're in the bed. God's going to expose every single one of them as if they were being revealed in a neon sign on the rooftop. Everything is going to be exposed, whether it's good or whether it's evil. And so that's the conclusion of life. That's how we make our life count. We live in light of the coming judgment. We fear God, keep His commandments. It's our duty. It's the conclusion of the whole thing. What other problems arise when you pursue things like a lotus or a big house or a big job or some big paycheck and you make that important to you like it's going to make you special and it's going to give you a lot of satisfaction? It won't satisfy. You will seek more and more. He that loveth silver, I need help. I forgot the second half. Shall not be satisfied with silver. No matter what you pick out of the list of goodies that the world, the devil, and your flesh will suggest will make you happy, it will not make you happy. You will never be the best. You say, I want to be the best. Oh, you're always going to meet someone that's better. I remember as a boy reading some of those early Joe Whiter commercials in the back, advertisements, excuse me, in the back of Popular Mechanics and Popular Science. And it it was an ad, it showed this little skinny dude trying to go down to the beach and here's a 220 pound fit muscular guy who's been lifting weights and you're supposed to look at that little scrawny guy. All the girls are disgusted by him and there's two babes hanging on the arms of this 220 pound well trained guy and so that you'll pop with your 50 bucks to get some brown Kool-Aid that Joe Whiter was willing to sell you called 
gain weight powder. But 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 then <laughs> but then I remember uh, seeing another comic later where the 98-pound weakling spends all his money to get all this gain weight powder from Joe Whiter, and he builds himself up, and he buffs himself in the gym and pumps iron, and he works himself up to be 240 fit pounds, and he goes down the beach, and lo and behold, there's a 420-pound fit man who's lifted weights a little bit longer. And the point being, there's always going to be someone better. If you achieve something... You're going to fear losing it. Read Ecclesiastes sometime. Solomon was sick about the fact he was going to lose what he achieved. If you achieve something, death is going to take it away. If you achieve something, you're going to have to give it to your foolish son who's going to waste it faster than you thought possible. That's what Solomon feared in his life. How does God measure your life? By the Bible. Because the Bible tells us what pleases God and what is true success. By fruit. The visible spiritual results of you and others that you affect. Parents and pastors, how do God's officers in God's offices see you? This is how you measure whether your life has been successful or not. How do I compare to the Bible? Do I have the fruit the Bible expects of a life like mine? And what do my parents and pastor say about me? How do good men measure? Same as God. That's why they're good men. They can read the Bible and measure you by it. They know the fruit. See, here's Bible. Here's fruit of true success. And they look for it. And they hear the assessment of God's offices about you. So instead of the world approving of us, instead of the devil saying, it's a good boy, you can be a hypocrite and get away with it, instead of your flesh being satisfied with what you're doing, We want to measure ourselves by the Bible, by the fruit we have, and by what those representatives of God in our lives say about us and suggest that we need to do with our lives to make them count more. Who in the Bible made life count? Enoch did. Enoch is in Hebrews 11.5. He's in the epistle of Jude. He's in Genesis chapter 5. He walked with God. And the Bible presents that as one of the most successful men in the pages of Scripture. But there is no word of other stuff. I can't read whether he had a lotus or not. I can't read whether Gisele married him or not. I can't read whether he had a big family with lots of little children or not. The Bible doesn't mention any of that stuff because none of that stuff matters. He walked with God. He was in fellowship with God all the time, and he pleased God God didn't want to leave him on earth. He took him straight to heaven. How about Joseph? Joseph's a hero in the Bible. He's a prince among men. He he knew how to practice true godliness toward his father, Potiphar, prison, and Pharaoh. And that was a he was a great man in the Bible. We love Joseph, and you should love Joseph. The apostle Paul labored. He labored more than others. But you know what else did he have? Did he have memberships at country clubs? Did he have a a chauffeur? He walked. He was robbed. He was shipwrecked. But Paul is one of the greatest men in the Bible because he labored more than others in serving the Lord Jesus Christ for the few years we have here in the world. David delighted in God and sought to build his temple. Abraham, he left everything he had in Ur of the Chaldees to go somewhere. 
He didn't even know where the Lord was leading him. Did it work? To leave everything you've got? Leave your fraternal brother, fraternity brothers? And strike out for a 500 mile trip? On foot? Did it work? Oh, it worked. Father of the faithful. How about Mary Magdalene? That's why, Mary, that's why Magdalena is called Magdalena. After Mary Magdalene. What about Mary Magdalene? She loved Jesus. What else did she have? She was so mobile she couldn't have had anything because she followed Jesus up and down and throughout Judea. There's a woman that loved the Lord Jesus Christ. How about Esther? She could have died for her request for the Jews, but she did it. She made her life count. She did something good for the Lord and His people. What about Ruth? She lost everything. She left her family, her culture, her nation, her religion, her address, her home, her friends. She could, she wouldn't have a high school reunion again with the Moabites. She went to Israel for Naomi and Naomi's God. Did it pay off? Did she make her life count? She's got a book in the Bible named after her and she was a Moabitess. Why? Because when Naomi said, go back to your family, she said, I will not go back. And don't keep talking to me that way. Your God's going to be my God and your people my people. And where you're buried, that's where I'll be buried. Who in the Bible wasted their lives? Lot did. By choosing Sodom in the world. And what did he lose for the choice? Everything. Everything. You say, well, I can pitch my tent toward Sodom and get away from it. You'll be the first one. Show us. I'm going to laugh about you being in the cave with your two daughters. Demas left Paul for his love of this present world. What did he lose sight of in that little expression? The world to come. There's a world to come that should motivate us. And that's how we make our life count, is by living it in light of the world that's coming. Demas left Paul. What a fool! Because he loved this present world. Solomon became a fool for outlandish women. The Bible tells us it destroyed him. The rich young ruler had so much in his favor. He told the Lord Jesus Christ, I've kept all these commandments from my youth up. And Jesus didn't deny him that. He just said, go sell what thou hast and give to the poor. But he couldn't do it. And he wasted his life. He could have been a great follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. He could have supported the New Testament church out of his wealth. Who out of the Bible counted? What about William Tyndale? He made his life count for something. He used the invention of the printing press to bring the first printed English Bibles into England. Though he had to do it on the continent because his life was being pursued in England. And he was burned at the stake. Now how's that for a making your life count? Did his life count? You know, we have a video that you ought to watch. See if you can shed a tear. and let Maybe let one little ball of salt water run down your cheek when you see those dock workers reach down to those bags of grain and pull out a New Testament Scripture and read 1 Corinthians 13, 4, where it says, Charity suffereth long and is kind. And it should affect you. His life counted. You say, but he, he got burned to death. Oh, who cares about this life? When you're burned to death for the glory of God, 
Where is William Tyndale since he was burned in the midst of the 16th century? Under the throne of Almighty God, in special care and protection. The martyrs gave their all for Christ. And where are they now? Under the altar of God. James Strong. Strong's Concordance. What a project. What a useful tool for people reading the Bible for the last 150 years. Women, countless women that loved their husbands and loved their children because God told them to do so and were faithful, loving mothers and wives as today's proverb should teach women on what a noble position they have to love their children. Who out of the Bible wasted their lives? Alexander the Great. He didn't die as a martyr. He died as an idiot. And I want you to remember something about Alexander the Great. He was just a dumb goat herder from Greece, Macedonia, to be precise. Daniel chapter 8 tells us why Alexander the Great was successful. It wasn't the phalanx of the Greek army. It was that dominion was granted unto him by the God of heaven. It tells us that in Daniel 8. The man was an idiot. He was a drunkard. He may have had other problems that I'm not going to mention right now. And it's all well known about him. John F. Kennedy wasn't much different. And the information about his private life is pretty public these days as well. Ben Franklin, Henry Ford. You say, but he invented the automobile. Well, how has that helped us in any way that God measures? It's a nice, witty invention, but it doesn't help us please God. It just brings about something called a lotus that ruins men. How about Bill Gates? Don't ask me about him. We had a few technical difficulties tonight. Warren Buffett and Donald Trump. Babe Ruth, Bill Russell, Michael Jordan. Do you know these names? They wasted their lives. But the reason I'm picking on them is because the world esteems them for different measures of a man's life that don't please God. Anyone, no matter how great, without God first, has wasted their life because their life was given to them by the choice of their Creator for Himself. What is God's measure of a life? We've been over it. Fearing God and keeping His commandments. It's glorying in Him, not man's three idols. Man's three idols are in Jeremiah 9. Let not the rich glory in His riches, the wise in His wisdom, or the strong in His strength. But let him glory in this, that he knoweth and understandeth me. It's to glorify God in your body and in your spirit, both of which are God's, because the apostle would write and ask, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Godliness with contentment is great gain. What a wonderful way to make your life count to practice godliness in thought, word, and deed, and to be content with everything the Lord puts on your plate. That is great gain. That is making your life count. Two rules. I love our religion. It is so simple. Love God supremely and others over yourself. That's how you make your life count. People know two things about you. And when they bury you, they'll write, He delighted in the Lord more than others, and he was a tree of life to all others. Because he keeps the first, the two commandments. That is the measure of a great life. 
That's the God who created your life and gave it to you, defining what is success. What's a successful man? He's holy and pure. We're talking about men right now. He's holy and pure against all lusts. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. How pure are you in your thoughts, words, and deeds? They're gracious because of the pureness in their heart. Even kings want to be their friend. That's a great man making his life count. He's sober. Remember? Exhort young men to be sober-minded in Titus 2. He's prudent and diligent in all things. What is your CQ, men? That's your character quotient. Forget your intelligence quotient. What's your character quotient, your wisdom quotient, and your spiritual quotient? If you were measured in a scale of what someone according to the Bible should be for your age, how do you compare? What's a successful woman? We're speaking of women here. Meek and quiet spirit is what the Bible says. A meek and quiet spirit is precious, of great price in the sight of God. The fear of the Lord that leads to the virtuous woman of Proverbs chapter 31. The things aged women should teach the younger women in Titus chapter 2. Being chaste and pure and good and obedient to their own husbands and loving their husbands and loving their children. Modesty and good works adorning a woman make her look beautiful and it makes her life count. And it's love for Christ above anyone, anywhere. Christ is always first to a woman that's a successful woman who has made her life count. She may wash dishes, do laundry, dust the house, serve her husband, and serve her children, and be rather obscure in her life. But she has made her life count by doing what God created her for, and doing it well, and doing it as unto the Lord. That is a great woman. Go read Proverbs chapter 31 about her. Think about this true success. Will you think with me here? I'm, we're wrapping it up. Think about this. It does not require good parents or upbringing. We don't care what, what side of the tracks you were born on, and neither does the Lord care. It doesn't matter what parents you had. You can have true success. You can make your life count regardless of where you were born, to whom you were born, and how they brought you up. It does not require an inheritance or money. You can't buy it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you were born a pauper. It doesn't require good looks. You say, I look in the mirror and I don't look like Tom Brady. Well, join the crowd. Or athletic skills. It doesn't require any of those. And the world is trying to make you feel like a loser and a failure because you don't have those things that God withheld from you. But you don't need them to please the God that created you at all. They are a distraction and a temptation to waste your life in pursuing things God hasn't called you to pursue. It doesn't require about education in some Ivy League school. That's not going to make you great. It's not going to even help you. It's going to be one horrible temptation. And it doesn't require the approval of anyone else. Think about true success. It's free. It doesn't matter to whom you were born. It doesn't require good looks, education, or approval. That is precious. You can make your life count. And you can start making it count tonight. You don't have to wait to get that degree from the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. You can start today. Who lived the greatest life? The Lord Jesus Christ. Born in obscurity. 
You think you had a bad birth? Try a manger for holding feed for cattle and sheep. Try dying at 33, never having a wife, never having an Ivy League degree, never having a lotus. Did he live a great life? Did he make his life count? Was he careful about it at all times, even at the age of 12? Was he careful about it when he was expiring on the cross and the pain that was radiating through his entire body and he could hardly get air into his lungs because of the diaphragm being compressed by his body hanging from nails, he took care of his mother and assigned her to the Apostle John. How would the world count him? How would the world count the Lord Jesus Christ by their measurement of success? A despised failure. You want to make your life count? Think of the Lord Jesus Christ. How does God measure him? There is no comparison. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And he died at 33 and he was, he was born in obscurity. He lived in poverty. He didn't have a place to lay his head. How does God measure him? Promoted him over all. Praise God. He's at the pinnacle of this universe. And he didn't get there by any of the things the world says you need to get ahead and that you need to be happy. And I want to tell you right now, he's as happy as you can imagine, squared by infinity. Because he's, he's enjoying pleasures at God's right hand forevermore. Psalm 16 tells us that. How do good men measure the Lord Jesus Christ? Altogether lovely. He's the perfect man, and that's what we want to do. What should you do tonight? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I sent you that song today because it, it pricked my heart. When a friend from Texas that's written me for a couple of years sent that to me, and I, I listened to it once, and I listened to it twice, then the tears were rolling down my cheeks, and I sent it to you. Did it provoke you to love the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you believe on Him? My wife comes home a couple hours later. I say, sit down. I start playing it. I couldn't breathe. I was messed up because it was describing the one place where we want to stand with lives that count, standing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Confess your sins of worldly goals for your life. Kick them out the back door. Smash them. Flush them. Beg God for right priorities and passions in your life. This verse right here says, if you don't confess your sins and forsake it, you will not prosper. Psalm 119.36 tells you what you put first in your life. Read, meditate, and go pray to delight in God. Acquaint now thyself with Him and be at peace. Thereby good shall come unto thee. That's making your life count. You can start tonight. You don't need money. You don't need help. You just need to humble yourself before God and admit, I was created for Him. I was created for His pleasure, and I'm going to give Him that pleasure starting tonight. Get rid of influences or inputs, as I've preached to you recently, that seduce you away from the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what you should do tonight. May the Lord bless you with this little reminder, with this little review of making your life count. The Bible says that good works follow men. 
When you die and you have a history of good works in your life, of delighting in the Lord and serving His people and His kingdom, it's going to follow you. The Apostle Paul said, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness and for all those that love His appearing. Stand with me, brethren, and thank you for your kind attention. Heavenly Father, blessed God, we thank Thee for creating us. Not so that we can enjoy this vain and vexing world, but so that we can enjoy Thee. Thank You for saving us to truly give us enjoyment in Thee. Heavenly Father, forgive us, for we have let the world, the devil, or our flesh seduce us and lead us away from Thee. Remind us by the power of the Holy Spirit of our purpose in life, and that's to bring glory and pleasure to Thee. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the power of the Holy Ghost. We thank You for the example of the Lord Jesus Christ and His grace that has saved us from this world. We thank Thee for the world that is to come. Let us not be lovers of this present world, but let us look to heaven and set our affections there. Heavenly Father, help every person in this room, especially our youth and our children, to think about making their lives count for them to reject peer pressure, worldly ideas, and the lifestyles of neighbors, to reject the thoughts the devil sows in their heart and mind, to reject their lusts, and to think that they can be great in the sight of the Lord, like Joseph and Ruth, by giving up these world things, worldly things to follow Thee. Mm-hmm. Heavenly Father, help us all to do this better. Make this church a church that's making its life count by all of us together living for Thee. We thank You for the time that we've had tonight. It went so quickly. We pray that You will keep us as the apple of Thine eye and lead us in paths of righteousness and wisdom. For we pray in Jesus' name, who made His life count for Thee and to save us. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed.